Welcome back to Creator Talks, the comic book writer and artist interview show. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Thank you for joining me and making this show part of your day. This episode, I have a real treat for fans of 1970s television shows and comic books. Writer Andy Mangles joins me on today's show to talk about the wildly successful DC Dynamite crossover, Wonder Woman 77 Meets the Bionic Woman. Yes, Andy has written a story teaming up Linda Carter's Wonder Woman and Lindsay Wagner's Jamie Summers, The Bionic Woman. Andy really knows the subject matter well and has written a miniseries sure to delight fans. The first two issues are now available in comic shops and the third is due to be released in March. Andy has a very long list of credits as a science fiction author, comic book writer on such titles as Star Wars and Star Trek, and a producer of pop culture DVDs and several magazine articles for the outstanding publication Back Issue, published by Tomorrow's. The multi-talented Andy Mangles is also a man of stage and song, and yes, I talked to Andy about his singing group, Broadway Bears. Up first though, Andy and I talk in depth about his work on Wonder Woman 77 meets the Bionic Woman. We talk about the series, but we don't get into any great spoilers. We just set up what has occurred in issues one and two, so if you want to jump on with issue three, you're all set. So. Sit back and relax, continue working, working out, or commuting to work while listening to my conversation with writer Andy Mangles, Spotlight on Wonder Woman 77 meets the Bionic Woman, on this episode of Creator Talks. Andy, welcome to Creator Talks. Hi, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for having me on here. Great to have you here. Uh, and it's great to have you working on Wonder Woman 77 and Bionic Woman. Um, you know, thinking back to the TV shows, Linda Carter and Lindsay Wagner were two strong, noble female heroines on TV. And it, is, it inspired a lot of young girls, a lot of, heck me, a lot of people back then. You know, it's a testament to the, the actress and the characters that they are still popular today. Um, now, obviously, you must have been a big fan of the series. Um, what really stood in your mind about Wonder Woman, and if you followed Bionic Woman, well, you know, I was I was the perfect age for the shows to kind of resonate with me in in like the the, the sweet spot of fandom, uh, which is ten. Ten is the perfect age for something to become cemented in your mind, whether that's music, or a movie, or TV shows, or things like that. It's the perfect age where you're starting to latch on to something and say, I I really love this. And for it to become kind of like either your favorite or the thing you hate the most or whatever. Um, and so Wonder Woman was, had always been a favorite character of mine as a kid and growing growing into 10. Um, but I lived in this tiny little town in Montana that only had one television station <laughs> that shared two networks. And then we got another station from Spokane, but you have to have a really good TV to get that. And the ABC pilot was only being broadcast on the the the, the piped-in Spokane station, and we had a bad black and white TV that so so I wasn't going to be able to watch it, uh, basically, uh, and so I did extra chores for a couple of weeks on the farm, so that my parents would borrow a good color television from our neighbors so that I could watch the pilot in color. And then I never saw the show in color again until I was an adult. Um, <laughs> or in, or with good reception, I should say. <laughs> um, 
but the Wonder Woman as a character and the way Linda Carter portrayed her, which was very true to the comics, was somebody who was kind of, she was appealing in all ways to all people. She was uh, pretty and sexy, so straight guys liked her. Um, she wasn't threatening. Uh, she wasn't sexual, uh, so she wasn't threatening to, to women. Uh, they wanted her more as her, uh, you know, guys wanted her as their girlfriend. Uh, women wanted her as their best friend. Uh, kids wanted her as their older sister or their their mother figure or or maybe as their girlfriend. You know, I mean, she was she she hit this perfect balance of providing a character that was independent, strong, and nurturing, um, and could also you know throw villains around and jump over buildings and so forth. Bionic Woman was a character I had first seen on The Six Million Dollar Man, and I really loved her. She didn't have the flashy costume, but Lindsay Wagner imbued that character with many of the same types of traits as Linda Carter did for Wonder Woman. Lindsay really brought a, a very strong sense of humanity and independence to her character, and then on top of that, she had she had much more of a goofy sense of humor than Linda had as Wonder Woman. They didn't write a lot of funny lines for Wonder Woman. When they did, they were they were usually almost dry, uh, dry humor. But Lindsay was kind of she was goofy a lot on the shows, and I really liked those aspects. Okay. Um... Now, when you started writing this for Dynamite DC, how did that happen? I mean, did you throw the pitch to them since you're very familiar with the subject matter or did they come looking for you or how did that work? Well, I had been in contention for writing the Wonder Woman 77 series for DC Comics back from the very start of when they were working on it. Um, I was one of the first people that they contacted and was put in uh, a proposal and so forth. And at the end of that proposal, the, I, I did a one-year proposal for the series. And at the end of the proposal, I said, I said, let's, let's let issue 12 lead into a crossover with Dynamite Comics and do a Wonder Woman meets the $6 million man and Bionic Woman comic series. And then I put plot. It's like printing money. <laughs> and, <laughs> And that was that was the plot I put down for the series. Um, I didn't get that job at DC Comics. It went to Mark Andreco instead. Mm -hmm. But I didn't give up completely. Uh, Jim Chadwick at DC uh, allowed me to write a text piece for Wonder Woman 77, the first issue. And um, I kind of kept in touch with people and so forth. And I, I actually went to DC and I said, look, I know I'm not right for what your plans are for Wonder Woman 77, but could I take this project to Dynamite and see if they're interested? And they, uh, on Christmas Eve of 2015, I got a message from a DC executive, Hank Knauts, and he was like, uh, Merry Christmas, your series is approved, you can take it to Dynamite if they're interested, it's a go. And that was that was my Christmas present that year. It was a fantastic <laughs> Christmas present. I, I went yeah. I went to Nick Berucci at Dynamite, and he said, 
um, well, let me think about it. Let me look at it. And, and um, they eventually they decided to do it. It was kind of a an, behind the scenes. And I can say this now. I've never been able to say this before. Um, that it was also dependent on the the Batman Shadow crossover that they're doing. And so it was kind of like, we'll do a series, you do a series. And so Dynamite got to do Wonder Woman meets the Bionic, meets the Bionic Woman, which is the first time they've ever licensed Wonder Woman out as a solo character ever for any kind of comic appearance. Um, she's been in Justice League stories, but she's never been on her own. And... Uh, and then in in return, DC got to do the Batman Shadow series that's just recently been announced. And so how did you approach writing this story? Well, how did you decide what the topic was going to be? I mean, obviously, it's a story where the two meet. There were a couple of, of challenges for me in this. And and it's interesting as I read like the reviews that have come out online. And there's a lot of reviews. People are really uh, quite excited about this book. It's It's been pretty cool. Um the the biggest challenge was I saw the two characters as being very alike. And so one of the challenges was how do I show how they're different? Uh, and and that's mainly by showing their personalities. Their power their powers are very similar um, or have similar elements, we'll say. Uh, they both work for government agencies. They both fought, in their in their TV shows, they fought fairly standard villains in suits and things like that. So, how do I write a comic that highlights their their similarities and their differences? And one of the things that I made the choice immediately was that they will not ever fight each other. I didn't want them to fight robots of each other. I didn't want them to fight each other over a man. I didn't want to fight them to fight each other because they were mind controlled they are not ever going to fight each other if you come into this miniseries hoping that you're going to see them throw down against each other you're going to be disappointed and that's no spoiler warning that's a warning warning <laughs> <laughs> um because i i thought in each of these two characters there is nothing about either of them that says i will fight you for this and um, so then it was, then it became a challenge of how do I put them together in a way that gives them something to fight against and, you know, both in the short run when they first meet and then in the long run in terms of the plot for the stories. And so in the short run, I had them, you know, there's a building that is bombed and explodes and, and they're both arriving for a meeting at their government agency um, and and both of them respond to this to this building exploding. And it was a great way, I thought, to open the series. It literally starts with a bang, and also a way to get to, to show the characters interacting. They meet each other, and then they immediately afterwards meet each other in their secret identities, um, wherein Jamie Summers like picks out that Diana Prince is Wonder Woman within seconds of meeting Diana Prince. And, um, it was, it was kind of a, a, a fun way to play that both these characters are, are highly capable. They're very smart and, um, and, and they're, they're going to get each other immediately as opposed to, well, it's going to take a lot of, they're going to have to fight each other and then they're going to have to figure out if they're on the same side and then they're going to have to do all this. No, it was like, no, these characters are way too smart for that. 
and they're way too capable and strong. You know, what I liked about it too was that you really took the personality of the characters and made them even more personable and real uh, as exhibited by the relationship between Diana and Jamie. I mean, and the other thing too is this is set in 1977 Mm -hmm. and it doesn't seem hokey or it doesn't like hit you over the head with, Oh, it's the seventies. Everyone's in bell bottoms and there's disco balls. You know, it's, it's uh, a little more sophisticated for the modern audience, a little more nuanced, uh, actually a lot more nuanced. I should say uh, it's just, it's uh, it's the kind of story of, I wish they would have done on TV. And at the time they were doing what they did with superhero shows back then, but it's nice to see it done this way where it's true to the time period, but it's not overdone. Well, uh, thank you for noticing that. We, um, it, it, again, it's interesting because I read the reviews and I and I hear from people about what they liked or didn't like or things like that. And some people, like in the first issue, we have a scene where all the government agents are together, and Diana and Jamie are two of the three women in the room, and one of the agents is very dismissive towards the two of them, and they have to stand up to that sexism and bullying. And it was a way of of showcasing that, well, this is what, what it was like at the time. And both shows had, had bumped up against it multiple times on their shows, but maybe not quite as bluntly as what I did in the comic, or maybe not quite as directly. And I really wanted that to show a sense of, okay, here's what, they're not just fighting against bad guys, or they're not just fighting against um, whatever the plot is. They're, they're also, they're fighting as women to be respected, and they're fighting to have their own independence respected. And um, it's also one of the reasons why I took a, a secondary character from the Wonder Woman series, who was a secretary named Eve, who was also an agent, and kind of gave her a lot more to do in the first issue. She kind of, she does she does more in the first issue of the comic than she did on, you know, nine episodes of the TV show. <laughs> Yeah, you've um, you've filled in some of the blanks. You've added to some of the mythos there. Uh, I mean, now I know why there are no seatbelts in the Invisible Plane. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was that was great. You know, it, it, it's funny because there are somebody just reacted recently and said, you know, there's a lot more of Wonder Woman explaining things to Jamie about her life than vice versa, and so th- there's there's a reason for that, and it will be actually addressed in issue number four. Um, but part of the reason is because the things that Wonder Woman does and has are so unusual that to Jamie or pretty much anyone else, like, how do you, the, the scene where she's like, I can't see the invisible plane until she like throws a rock at it. And then Jamie kind of vi- hears the vibrations and kind of sees it through that like sonar. Um, but how do you, how do you explain to a normal person who's not, grown up on a mythological island um, how this stuff works and so for Jamie yes she's met aliens and yes she's met Bigfoot and and you know telepathic villains and things like that all of which Wonder Woman's done as well so Wonder Woman's going to be more interested in Jamie as a person as a human being and as a um, fellow as a fellow strong woman She's going to have much more interest in that than how do your bionics work. Whereas with Jamie, although, of course, she's interested in Wonder Woman and, and interested in, in how her life works, 
a lot of it is is like, wait, how do your bracelets deflect bullets, and how do how do you see your invisible plane, and where did this instrument come from, you know? <laughs> and actually, there's the issue three, which is about to come out now. Um, Jamie has to fly the invisible plane on her own, and and she has a you know difficult time. She can't see what she's doing. She doesn't know where the instruments are. She doesn't know what, you know what to do, and and um, so. It, it, it's it's kind of a fun scene where she where she has to like figure out how to control her situation, which is I'm flying an invisible plane that I can't see the controls of. I can only feel, um, and you know, help Wonder Woman who's who's dealing with this other emergency. Um, it's kind of a fun scene. It must be fun to be playing in that sandbox, uh, much like. Batman 66 comic book series, you don't have to be constrained by budget in terms of what you can do in the book, like you would be on a TV show. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've already, uh, if, if this were a, say, a three-part crossover between the, be, or a four-part crossover between the shows, it the budget would be, you know, as much as the entire season, just in terms of guest stars. The amount of, of characters that I'm bringing back, thus meaning the actors, you know, the the guest star budget would be huge. The the special effects budget w- would be higher than anything they would have had in 1977. Um, and, you know, the costuming budget and everything else, uh, we've, we've used the invisible plane more in two issues than they used in the entire series of Wonder Woman. Um, and, and, you know, in many ways, there's ways for us to incorporate, like Jamie's hearing, we use... Um, significantly throughout the series. And they did on the TV show, but there kind of wasn't, other than her pulling her hair back behind her ear, there wasn't like, and, and the sound effect, there wasn't like a real way to show how it was used. And so I'm trying to do that in the, in the series as well. Now, with this book, you uh, have credited two super fans who helped you out with some of the research or some of the work that was done on it. Mm-hmm. Would you uh, tell me who they are and, and how they helped uh, you out? One is Aaron Harvey, and he is um, a Star Trek expert and and fan, but he's also a a Wonder Woman and Bionic Woman expert and fan. And he actually, um, he was one of my beta readers as I was developing it, but he also helped me uh, get ready some of my bet. When the, the series was originally supposed to be announced at Denver Comic Con last year, and so I had a big banner made for it. And then they decided that they were going to wait until San Diego Comic-Con. So I didn't get to show anybody the banner, but uh, Aaron helped out with that and with some, you know, some behind-the-scenes materials. And then the other gentleman is Paul Bisson, uh, who, is, who runs his own Wonder Woman and Bionic Woman separately podcasts. And Paul is my... Uh, very much my right-hand man on this project in terms of he's my beta reader. He catches any errors that that I do before I can make them. Um, I'll come to him and I'll say, you know, was Oscar ever specifically stated as being Jewish? And he's like, well, there was this one episode in which there's there's a reference to Nazis or or that, you know, that they don't like your people. And he says, that's about it. That's there, there was never any explicit statement for Oscar Goldman being Jewish. But I knew the scene that I wanted to do, which opens issue two, is is a Shiva ceremony uh, 
which is the memorial service for for somebody who's passed away that that uh, the Jewish faith does. And I knew that not only was I establishing that the character who passed away in issue one was Jewish, but I wanted to make it clear that Oscar Goldman was as well. And then I have Wonder Woman come in and she gives a Hebrew uh, saying of peace to the daughter. So, you know, I wanted to establish all that, but first I had to figure out, and in my memory, I didn't have that information, but Paul's just this treasure trove of information. He was like, yeah, it was in this episode, and they said this specific phrase. Um, so, you know, you can make this te text instead of subtext if you want. So Paul's been great. Um, he remembers things sometimes that I don't, and sometimes I'll, I'll catch him on something. It's, it's nice to have somebody that you can trust that's also a huge fan. That's great. Did he also help out with, or did both of them help out with the notes in the back of the book? I noticed in issue two, there were uh, annotations about information on some of the pages. No, that was me. Okay. <laughs> that was, you know, one of the things that, that I'm trying to do in the series is I want this, I want no fan to be able to come to this and say, you got this wrong, that this didn't happen or that this didn't didn't exist or... And that includes everything, including like the plants in Steve Trevor's office. So I've gone through episodes and given Judith, the artist, I've given her literally hundreds of thousands of screen captures. So when she has to draw a scene in Steve Trevor's office, she has 312 photos to look at to say, well, which angle am I using? Where's this plant? What's on the shelf over here, et cetera. So that it looks like Steve Trevor's office. It doesn't just look like a generic room. Um, it looks actually like his office. And uh, it's interesting as an artist, she has, she has a difficult job because she's got to make the characters look like Linda and Lindsay and Lyle Wagner and all the other actors, but she also has to interpret it as a comic book and we didn't want it to be stiff. We wanted it to look like a comic book, not like a photo reference thing. But when we're doing things like drawing their offices or drawing the building that Rudy Wells works in or Oscar Goldman's office or, you know, the outfits that the characters are wearing, I'm giving a very specific reference and saying she's wearing the same dress here that she wore in this episode or she's wearing a variation on this dress, or this fembot is in this outfit that you see in this photo. Um, because I want it to be something that the fans really go, oh, wow, look at all this. And then in addition, uh, we're doing things like we're referencing, you'll, you'll see in those annotations, we're referencing a very specific helicopter that they're using. Uh, there's a boat that they use, that the bad guys use, that uh, shows up a little bit in issue two, and then it's a lot in issue three. And again, that was something where we were saying, uh, where I did a whole bunch of research on which boat might accomplish this in 1977. And thank God for Google, because, <laughs> or thank Google engineers for Google, because, you know, it makes it easier to, to figure out which boats were around in 1977 and how they were used and and so forth and then provide Judith with a lot of photo reference of okay here's here's what I'm asking for so hopefully just like when you sat down and watched an episode and it looks like it because it was filmed in 1977 hopefully this comic will fit in just as nicely Judith is capturing 
everything in the subtlest of facial expressions. Um, you can really see the connection between Jamie and Diana. And um, she even has the Wonder Woman swimsuit in there. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> was that in one, just one episode or two episodes? Was that? Oh, no, that, they used that in, I think, five. Okay. Uh, in the background somewhere, Paul, as he's listening to this, is going, no, it was six or no, it was four. <laughs> I think it was five. Um, and then it, they also used the, the, I call it the Wonder Wetsuit. Uh, because it's WW. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, in in the script they call it the Aqua Suit, which I thought, well, that's kind of mixing your that's mixing your superheroes up here. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the uh, I, I I I absolutely knew that the Wonder Wetsuit had to make an appearance, and so I wanted to work it in as quickly as possible. And I actually, Cat uh, Staggs, who does all the regular covers. Um, I told her draw the Wonder Wetsuit on the cover of issue number two because I know I'm going to use it in issue two or issue three, and so I have to do it. You know, it has to be there, and so that then hamstrung me then because I had to work in exactly when she was using it because I hate covers that have action scenes that have nothing to do with the interiors. So, oh, I hear you. I hear you. So I have to have that scene. And then uh, the colorist was was ready to strangle me because Kat had done a very specific jumpsuit for Jamie on that same cover, which had stripes on it. And he he had to match those stripes in every panel for two issues. And he was just like, ah, I'm so glad she's not in that outfit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> How did she get teamed up with Judith? Uh, Judith was, well, First, I used to work for Innovation Comics back in the early 90s. And Innovation did a lot of licensed books and did a lot of stuff with uh, with actor likenesses. And the guy who ran Innovation was Dave Campiti. And Dave now runs his own company called Glasshouse Graphics. And he represents artists mostly from South America and Asia. But he has artists all over the world now comic artists who work in their native lands but don't necessarily work for American publishers. So he helps them kind of get into the American comic scene, as well as he will work with American artists who, you know, who need representation. But I came to him and I said, this is a book about two two female characters, uh, women of strength, and it's a book about that, that has a ton of likenesses in it. And I want an artist who can do likenesses, who can do good action sequences, and preferably who is a woman, because I didn't want this to be a whole bunch of guys doing this female empowerment book about two two female empowerment characters. And so he looked through his roster and says, I think I have I have the perfect woman for you. And he got me some samples from Judith that were of the series Ghost for Dark Horse Comics. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad he sent me those samples, not... She had done some Grimm's Fairy Tales work, but if you've ever seen Grimm's Fairy Tales, it's really cheesecake-y. Mm-hmm. And these pages he sent me from Ghost were really dynamic and showed a lot of talent in terms of storytelling. So then it, then I was like, okay, let's have her do some samples with the likenesses and... Um, the costumes and let's see how she does with that. And 
and she knocked it out of the park. Um, that said, there's one thing about Judith's art that, that people keep missing, and so I keep telling people this in every interview I give, which is we're shooting this book from Judith's pencils. It is not a penciled and inked book. So the, the line work, when you shoot from pencils, there's a different quality to it. Sometimes it's much thicker. Sometimes it's more lush. Sometimes it's kind of gritty. Um, but it's a very different quality than when you have black and white uh, pencils and inks. Mm -hmm. And our first issue, we ended up having two different colorists on it. And while they both did good jobs with it, it was, they they hadn't quite, I think, got working with Judith's pencils as opposed to inks meant a different quality was needed with the coloring. Um, and so with issue number two, we picked up a new colorist, Roland Pilks, who is also Hungarian, like Judith, and he had worked with her before, and he very clearly melds the color with the pencils in a way that almost leaves it looking like painted. Hmm. And um, it's it's very visible when you when you look at some of the original art, and and then you see the the, the colored art, um, how much the two of those artists are working together and making the book really gorgeous. Well, I have to say that both the story and the art is very respectful of both characters. Um, nothing disappoints me more, and I won't mention any names, <laughs> where there's a comic book where you know I, I like the writer, but they just completely miss the character, especially a long-established character who's been around for decades. Mm -hmm. And it's just it just seems wrong. Like there's something just totally taking me out of it because it's not there's the essence of the character is not there. And sometimes people attempt to reboot something or refresh it or bring it up to modern standards, modern sensibilities and it's all well and good for certain characters but if it's an older established character especially one that we grew up with people are very sensitive to that you know and, and this i think fans of the wonder woman television show fans of wonder woman and fans of the bionic woman um they're going to really like this when they read it and this is um a six issue series it is six issues yeah uh issue three like i said is just about to come out um, I'm, we're working on issue four. We're, we're very close to deadlines on all of these. So we're working on issue four now. Uh, the covers have been done for all six issues. I can't tell you who the covers for issue six are yet, but, um, it, there, there's a, a pretty, pretty cool name that's on the cover for issue six. Um, those variant covers, I, 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 we haven't mentioned those, but, uh, you know, Cat Staggs is doing our regular covers, which is, um, something pretty cool. She's, Kat is uh, an openly lesbian artist, so not only did we get a powerful woman drawing the the covers, but we got a, a lesbian artist as well. So it was, you know, showcase. I, and I'm an openly gay writer, so it is showcasing some diversity. We we've, we've tried to get our letterers is a husband and wife couple, Tom Marzakowski and Lois Buhalas. We've tried to kind of incorporate diversity for the series, not only in the series itself but also in the creative team. Uh, and then our cover, our variant covers, uh, the main variant covers, issue one was Alex Ross, who of course is a legend. Issue two was Aaron LaPresti, who was a past Wonder Woman artist. Um, and that cover to issue two, by the way, has a lot of Easter eggs in it and clues to what's coming in the series that um, 
fans will be able to when they go when the series is done they'll be able to look back and go oh that's what that means oh that's what that means uh <clears throat> i'm sure we'll talk about the villains here in a minute but yeah. uh and, and i'll talk about one of those reveals okay but um uh, issue three's covers by glenn hansen who at one point wrote a real world's wonder woman book and um he's a stupendous commercial artist who hasn't done a lot of comic work, but is a, a massive Wonder Woman, Bionic Woman 70s fan. And um, you can find him online. At, I think it's glennhanson.com. Uh, he does a lot of stuff with Golden Girls and Cher and things like that. And he's done official posters and T-shirts and mugs for many of these 70s artists uh, and, and actors and actresses. Um, issue four's cover is by Bill Sienkiewicz. Oh. Um, I, you know, I mean, that was one of those <laughs> people are like, how did you get Bill Sienkiewicz to do Wonder Woman, Bionic Woman? And I'm like, well, first, he's of that era. He grew up with them too. Second, Bill and I have known each other for 30 years now and have never gotten to work on a project together. And at Comic-Con, when he heard I was doing this, he's like, well, here's our, here's our opportunity to work together. And so he was very happy to do that cover. Uh, issue five's cover is by Phil Jimenez, who both wrote and drew Wonder Woman. And that cover, of course, reveals a lot of secrets. Um, characters that, that fans are like, wait, what? She's, she's coming back? You know? um, and then issue six's cover is by a, a special, another special guest artist who I, who I can't name yet, but they're really cool. And, and the cover's gorgeous. Um... So yeah, it's it's even even up into doing the variant covers, we're we're really trying to make this be something that that is a love letter to the fans, and is really, uh, it's it's it it really says we respect the continuity, we respect the characters, we respect the actresses, and we respect what this means to the fans. It's not just being written by a by a fan, and everyone knows that I'm a huge fan. Um, it's not just being written by a fan, but it's being written for the fans. Um, so hopefully that will, you know, have an effect. Yeah, and all those covers are great. I go into the comic shop and I'm like, okay, which one do I get? And you know, if people can't decide, you can get both. I mean, it's not like these are incentive covers where you get one per every fifty. As far as I know, they're you know equally available and equally distributed, so they're all there. Yeah, um, all of the main covers are that way. There are incentive covers, which are like virgin covers with oh, right. logos yes. or black and white art or things like that. And the super fans can get those, but regular regular comic stores, they can order either cover in any amount that they want. Awesome. And, uh, you know, that's that's a pretty cool option to give. I, I was pressing for that from day one. I said, you know, I know we're going to do variant covers. Let's not have them... A, be cheesy, but B, let's have people be able to order them in the same level. I, I When I was in my teens, I actually worked for a comic book store here in Oregon, Pegasus Fantasy Books, which was owned by Mike Richardson. Uh, and he actually created Dark Horse Comics in the same shop that I worked at. I used to be filling customer subscription boxes while Randy Stradley was putting together Dark Horse Presents Number 1 and Boris the Bear that James Smith, who did Boris the Bear, would come in and deliver pages to our comic store, you know. So I I was actually a retailer you know, in my youth. Uh, 
And um, so I kind of know from all senses from being a writer in the industry and being somebody who's worked behind the scenes as an editor and licensor, and then also as a retailer. And I really said, let's not screw over the retailers. Let's do something that they can order as many of the covers as they want, that they can sell, that they can really get behind. And um, so far it seems to be working. The, the first issue, I haven't seen the sales numbers on the second issue yet. They'll be out this week. But the first issue was in the top 100. It outsold uh, half of Marvel's line and about a third of DC's line. Um, it was the number three, I think it was the number three best-selling independent comic for the month. And it was Dynamite's number two best-selling comic for the year. Wow. So, you know, the, the retailers really got behind it. And, and I have yet to hear from a retailer who's complaining about their sales on the book. Well, thank you for pushing for the covers to be equally distributed. I appreciate that as a fan. The fans have been very happy with it. I, from what you're telling me, it sounds like the sales are great. How's uh, Dynamite feel about it? As far as I can tell, uh, you know, they haven't, I haven't gotten any, uh, um, you know, bonus awards or anything. <laughs> from, you know, hey, we're so happy. But they, they, there have been talks about, well, what, what am I doing after this? Am I going to be writing some other series for you? You know, is there even a possibility of doing a sequel to this? Um, is there a possibility of uh, there's some other things that I've brought up to them in a, as licensing possibilities? And, um, you know, so I'm hoping that I'm hoping that not just Dynamite, but some other comic companies will, will look at this and say, well, look at how successful this was. Um, you know, I've been in the industry a long time, but I was. I did comics, and then I transitioned into doing books, and then I transitioned from that into producing DVDs and doing documentary work and things like that, and now I'm back to comics, and, um, you know, there, there are some people who have kind of felt like what, you know, you were, you were a part of the old guard of comics, which is funny, because I'm I just turned 50 this year, which I guess now officially makes me old. But, um, <clears throat> you know, I don't think of myself as the old guard of comics because to me, the the 90s were not that long ago. But to many people, that, that was, you know, that was quite a while ago. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. Most of the editors that I've ever worked with in the industry are, are now no longer in the industry or they've transitioned into other jobs. Um, so it's it's kind of a whole new world of trying to explain to some of the newer editors and newer people who I am and why they should hire me and what I can offer them. And nowadays, hopefully, all I have to do is show them Wonder Woman 77 meets the Bionic Woman, and they'll go, oh, this is what he can offer. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> so you mentioned it earlier. Tell us about the villain of the series. Okay, so the villains... <clears throat> It's, that's been an interesting thing to set up because I, it was kind of a big question of do we use one villain from Wonder Woman and one villain from Bionic Woman? Do we use a couple villains, etc.? And so I said, well, let's let's kind of create a Legion of Doom. Let's create a cabal of villains who are working together towards a common goal, but who are not necessarily... It's not a team. Um, and... To me, that kind of like I loved 
on the Legion of Doom, how none of them particularly liked each other. They were working together, and and but then they would pick at each other, and they would you know fight amongst themselves because they were they were villains, you know, and they were just like Grod, you annoy me. <laughs> you know? um, well, Luther, you're a pompous ass, you know. I mean, it was it was um, they never, of course, said that on Super Friends, <clears throat> but um, uh. I wanted to put together kind of a group of villains who would work together. And as we've now, we've now seen most of them in issue number two, and we have an idea what their plans are. Um, but the, the entirety of their plans doesn't really, there, there's a lot more to it than what people are initially thinking. And uh, so I created this cabal called Castra which you can look up what that word means in uh, on Google. Um, and I wanted it to be a, an organization that you weren't immediately sure how far-reaching they were, how many members it had, what, it's, what all of its goals are, and so forth. And um, you just know about what you're, what you're shown. And, and interestingly, some of the reviews have, have like criticized me for that, and they've been like, well, this villain has not revealed who it is in the first issue, and this character's in the shadows, and I don't know who this character is. And I, my response to that is kind of, have you watched television, <laughs> episodic television, for the last 40 years? There, that happens all the time. You know, even in, even in the new Star Wars movie, you know, there's a character lurking in the background, or you see them from behind, and you don't know who they are until they decide to reveal who they are. And you don't you don't say well you know the blacklist is introducing these characters and we don't know who they are or what they mean so why should I care about them? You go oh who is this mysterious character and what do they mean to the story and how are they going to affect the storyline and the characters? But in this book they're kind of expecting that so, some people have been expecting that everything's going to be laid out to them like pabulum. That they're just going to like all the information is going to be info dumped on them, and that's not how how storytelling works. Storytelling works by giving you bits and pieces of the story so you can start to piece it together, and then maybe throwing a, a left turn or a monkey wrench into it and saying, "Ah, here's what you thought, but here's what's really going on." Within Castor, in issue one, we saw there was uh, there there was one character that was identified as being a part of Castra. And he definitely is. Um, but then there was a mysterious woman in a cloak and uh, armor who invaded the IADC offices. And there was an old guy in prison. And we didn't know who this old guy was or why he was important. In issue two, we, we revealed who most of the characters are. The woman in the armor is Dr. Cyber, who is a comic book villainess. But we, we revealed that in the... TV show continuity, it's actually a character who appeared on the TV show Gloria Marquez, who was in the second pilot, The Return of Wonder Woman, which is when she came to the 1970s on CBS. And Gloria always struck me. She was played by Jessica Walters, who plays bitch really, really, really well. And Gloria was a bitch. She was, she was just mean. Uh, for no reason other than she just, that's what she was. And and I almost was like, oh, she is so mean. I would love to write her. 
And um, at the end of Return of Wonder Woman, Gloria and Dr. Solano, who's who's a robot creator, um, run into a cave and Wonder Woman has, there's, she's got this exploding robot and she throws it, not realizing they're in the cave, throws it into the cave and it explodes. As far as we know, that's the end of them. As we learn in the comic, that's not the end of them. Um, and how she became Dr. Cyber and why Dr. Solano is now in a wheelchair and kind of his face looks a little melted um, and what their motivation is, that's all going to be revealed in issue three and, and beyond. And we revealed who the, the mysterious man in prison was and he is ex-Nazi Captain Radel, uh, who is played by John Saxon on Wonder Woman. And uh, Radel was the character, if you don't recognize the name, you'll recognize the story. He was in a two-part episode called The Feminine Mystique, which is most people's favorite Wonder Woman storyline ever. Uh, it, it was the introduction of Wonder Girl, and uh, Nazi Captain Radel and his crew invaded Paradise Island in order to get the feminum that they make their bulletproof bracelets out of. So he's now, he's been in prison for 35 years, and he, he now gets broken out to join Castra. And then we revealed, you know, also in issue two, that Dr. Franklin, who is the creator of the fembots, is uh, a part of Castra, and he is... He appeared in, in a crossover between the Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman. And he's a pretty interesting, interesting, unusual guy. Now, fans may recall that he supposedly died in prison and that his supposed son took over and created more fembots. But then his son turned out to be a fembot himself. And we didn't see his son in issue number three, nor did we actually see any fembots, but it's probably a pretty good idea that, you know, we might be seeing some fembots and, and his son in future issues, given that they were on the cover of issue number two, Aaron Lopresti's cover, and they're on the cover of issue number five by Phil Jimenez. So, you know, you can, you can kind of, kind of think, well, um, they might be in there, yeah. And, <laughs> and I will tell you that there is there is another Wonder Woman villain who shows up in issue number three. And actually, no, he is in issue number two. That's, that's Orlok Hoffman. That was Frank Gorshin's character um, in an episode called The Deadly, Deadly Toys. And he was, he created a, a, a robot, a robotic or android Wonder Woman um, that she ended up having to fight herself in this pretty cool scene. Um, so Orlok Hoffman is there. So you've got a, a character called Dr. Cyber. You've got another character who created a robot. You've got one or two characters who created the fembots and you've got Dr. Hoffman who created a robot and you've got a Nazi captain who knows the secret of paradise Island and where to find indestructible metal. Um, what their eventual plans are together, you'll have to keep reading to find. But all the clues, all, all the all the threads have been put into place. You'll find out more about them in issue three. And it's all in the first two issues, but I can say that it doesn't feel like it's all jammed in there. It doesn't feel like there's too much put in. You well, know? well, thank you. 
<laughs> I, I, someone made that criticism. I was listening to a show and I was like, no, I, I read the same book you did and I did not get that impression. You know, because I know some people, sometimes they do that. They try to get, they don't have enough time to expand the story, but you have six issues. So there's plenty of room there to expand the story. Yeah, it's interesting that, that some of the reviewers are are talking about how I, I'm rather languid in my storytelling and that I'm, you know, I have downtime for the characters. They actually have time to sit and have conversations uh, and other characters are like, everything's just like crammed in there. There's this happens and this happens and this happens. And I'm kind of like, well, which, which is it? Am I, <laughs> am, I put, am I putting too much? Am I putting too little? Um, and I think, again, if you look at the pacing of what they did on TV at the time, and I, I actually worry about this as, I, as I'm writing the stories and as I'm plotting out what's going on each page. And, you know, I'm I'm thinking about how they edited the TV shows together back then. And and, you, you know, you would have a character in Washington, D.C., and then in the next scene, they're in California. And they didn't explain how they got from Washington, D.C. to California. You just you just understand that they had, <laughs> you know, somehow they got from Washington, D.C. to California. Is it a day later? Is it a week later? We don't know. Um but I'm kind of trying to to get that style, uh, that 70s TV show style of like, well, not everything needs to be explained, but if I have the opportunity to explain it, then I will. Um, and then also there there are many things that that I'm I'm looking at and saying, what's the logic behind this? What's the reality of this? And yes, you're dealing with superpowered characters, but the fact that there's something major that happens in in issue two and three, uh, which is Radel's jailbreak, and Diane, Wonder Woman and Diana Prince and Jamie Summers, the Bionic Woman, don't find out about it because it's not brought to anybody's attention that there's been this jailbreak until after they're out of range, um, and. And, and there comes there comes a time where we have to deal with the fact that there's no telephones on Paradise Island. <laughs> there's no tele there's no telephones in the Invisible Plane. There's no telephones on. You know, the bad guys aren't going to have a hotline to Washington D.C. Um, there's no telephones on Paradise. You know, there's no way for them to know certain things have happened because cell phones weren't invented then. And you know, yes, they had. Um, on the shows, they had the you know giant brick mm -hmm. uh, mobile phones, or some of the cars would have like rotary dial telephones in, in the dash. Um, but that doesn't mean that the invisible plane has one of those, <laughs> and it doesn't mean that you know those telephones are going to work halfway across the world. So there's there is an element of the story where I'm I'm thinking about okay, what's the reality of this? The reality is they aren't going to know about this. So how am I going to use that in my storytelling? Or the reality is, you know, Jamie has has the ability to jump uh, this high, you know, four stories high or five stories high. What happens when she needs to jump more than that? Or, um, you know, despite what, what some people have shown, Wonder Woman doesn't fly um, in the TV series. So at what point does that become an issue? Um you know, the, the limitations of reality, I've tried to put, even though it's a superhero show, I've tried to put the limitations of reality onto the story so that people can kind of be like, oh, how are they, they going to deal with this? 
Um, I wanted to segue to something I noticed in issue two, unrelated mm-hmm. to the issue itself. There was an ad for Tomorrow's Publications, and you had written for them and still write for them. I've written for Tomorrow's, oh goodness, uh, over 10 years. Um, I started with Back Issue Magazine, and I think I'm in the first issue. Um, and then I've written for other Tomorrow's Publications, but mostly Back Issue. And I, I usually write... Uh, one or two it's a bi-monthly magazine so i write one or two articles per year for them kind of of what what interests me and what often interests me is something really obscure or something related to the confluence of hollywood and comics that's kind of my sweet spot is how do comics and hollywood meet and even back when i was the very start of my career when i wrote for amazing heroes magazine i was writing stories about how were how were Hollywood and comics meeting at that book. There's a lot of what people now look at as, you know, online gossip columns and websites like Ain't It Cool News. And Harry Knowles uh, once kind of gave me credit as his inspiration for Ain't It Cool News. Reading my columns in Amazing Heroes was, was you know, kind of his inspiration for Ain't It Cool News. Um, now, nowadays, what I did back then looks quaint because nowadays, the moment something is released, it's on 53,000 websites. Um, but back then, when I was writing it, the only place you could find out about this stuff was this news column in Amazing Heroes. Um, you know, it was it was much more uh, precious than, you know, mm-hmm. like, oh, I have to read this. Um, but I've always been fascinated at the way Hollywood and comics kind of mix. With my work for Tomorrow's, mm-hmm. it is a, you know, it really is kind of a mixture of that. Did you interview Linda Carter as well? I did, yeah. It's in, it's in a back issue, issue, back issue number five, and it was the longest interview she's ever given. Uh, that's what she told me. <laughs> I thought it was the longest interview about Wonder Woman that she'd ever given. It was it was a massive interview that that really covered a lot and um, was very revealing about um, you know how the show worked and how she felt about it then and how she feels about it now and you know there were things I asked her. She's like, "How did you know that? How did you figure that out? I don't even remember that." You know. Um, <laughs> And it's funny because the fans have the ability to to go back and study things. The actors who were doing mm. things at the time, you would think, well, how do you not remember that you did this? But the actors are, you know, they're, they're going through pages of dialogue every day and they're, they may be filming two or three episodes at once or scenes from. And so, you know, in their minds, often it, it can blur together or they remember individual moments, but not the entirety of the of the situation no it's um the magazine's a great magazine i mean i know there's a lot of information that's possible on the web and you can find it on all these sites but if you want you know deep information that's where i go and it's very very enjoyable to read um you have some other writing credits too you have a lot of writing credits and you've written for marvel dc image um you've written star trek elf quest there are some books that did not get a chance to see the light of day. I mean, they were pitched and turned down, or they just haven't popped up yet. And some that I would love to see would be <laughs> Dr. Midnight, Exo Manowar, oh. and Fritz Lang's Metropolis, especially. Right. Um, are there any that you're itching to get to? Or are these among them? Or are there others? Well, I am going to be um, pitching IDW. I've pitched them a couple of times to do some Star Trek work. 
Michael Martin and I, when we were writing Star Trek together, we did a series called Titan, Star Trek Titan, and it was Riker's ship. Uh, at the end of the last movie that they did with uh, the Next Generation crew, Riker was going off to get his own ship. He, he married Deanna Troy. He was going off to get his own ship. And we wrote the books, the first two books, that established what that ship was, who the crew was, and so forth. And it was a very cool uh, concept. It was basically, you know, of the crew of 300, only about 20 of the characters are human, and the rest are alien races. So it was almost like a cosmic zoo in some ways. And so we got to, again, that element of figuring out how reality works as it relates to this universe um, you know, what do you do when you have a Horda, which is a, you know, looks like a big rock and, and a giant spider creature and a intelligent velociraptor and an amphibious water breather all on the same ship? How do you accommodate them? Because their uh, life support means different things to each of them. <laughs> you know, uh, their their living quarters are going to be different. And, and the way people react to them is going to be different. And so... I am. I'm going to be pitching again to IDW to to do Titan as a comic series because it's visually it would be really fantastic. Uh, but it's the most diverse Star Trek ever has been shows up in the Star Trek Titan book series, which is their their most popular book line um, for uh, for pocket books is is the Titan books. Well, so I, I really <laughs> I really want to do that and. And um, I'm, I still pursue, you, you mentioned Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Mm -hmm. I still pursue that. Uh, I still have the same proposal with, with the artist out there. And one of these days, someone's going to say, yes, let's do that. Because it's the, the art by Stan Shaw is phenomenal and, and really cool. And, um, you know, so I, I, it'll be published someday. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> but, you know, working with working now with Dynamite and with DC, I'm also hoping that that this won't be the end of of my work on either of these two specific characters, or you know, perhaps maybe some other 1970s characters that you know I loved watching when I was a kid. Now, so you have the comics, you've written books, you've written for magazines, you've worked on DVDs, but you also are a man of song and stage. I can hear the sounds of violence long before it begins. Make me thrill as only you know how. Sway me smooth, sway me now. <laughs> I, I want to get a chance to talk to you about that. Please tell us about your singing and your group. Well, I yeah, I'm in a group called the Broadway Bears, and uh, then I also do stage stage shows i just finished up a show called the sensational 60s uh here in oregon uh and i do stage work whenever i get you know i go on an audition like anyone else and and rise or fall on the basis of whether they liked my voice or they liked me in the audition but with broadway bears it's a group um i was in a show called the secret garden with another guy and for those people who don't know what a bear is um, you can Google it online, but you might want to be careful about looking at some of the images. But a bear is, uh, as it relates to people, is a, a big, hairy guy. So a guy with a beard, belly, big, hairy, you know, mountain man type. And um, 
and we were both lamenting the fact that although we had been cast in the show, we were, you know, we were the chorus, we were in the back, we weren't, we weren't the type that would ever get to play the leads. And so thus we couldn't ever get to sing the big songs. Um, and we certainly didn't, you know, no guy ever gets songs as good as women do on stage. Women always get the best songs. And so we were like, we should just start a group where it's nothing but bear guys who get to sing um, Broadway, whatever they want from Broadway. So I've been doing that for five years. We've been doing concerts in Oregon. And uh, I think my biggest audience was in front of about 3,000 people. That was that was pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but we do we do show tunes and and movie movie songs and things like that, um, and I had been intending actually I was supposed to record my first album and put it out at the same time as the first issue of Wonder Woman meets Bionic Woman, but I decided to kind of pull back on that. Um, I'm I'm not ready right now to do my first album, but eventually I'll do I'll do an album of show tune stuff. And um, you also are a social activist in the gay community, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk about some of your charity work that you've done as well. Probably the biggest charity work that I've done, and and you know when you talk about a, as a social activist, it's it's funny because nowadays activism, in the political climate that we're in, activism is actually returning to what it was when I came out back in back in eighty the, the late eighties. Um, and back then we had a president who was ignoring um, or actively pursuing anti-gay agendas um, and who was ignoring the existence of AIDS and who was who was very anti-woman and, you know, et cetera. And, um, you know, it's interesting now that we're that we're facing a similar uh, political landscape where a lot of minority concerns and concerns for women and concerns for um, various types of minorities, whether it's a, a sexual orientation or, um, uh, you know, place of birth or skin color, race, um, or even as we've seen um, with handicaps and physical disabilities, um, there is there is definitely a, a difficult administration when, when we're dealing with that. And so activism is kind of, returning back to the kind of grassroots um, anger-based uh, activism that it was in the late 80s. Um, the work that I prefer to do is education-based activism and you know, whether that's speaking speaking somewhere, um, performing somewhere and and bringing in money that way, um, or for seven or eight years, I did an event called Wonder Woman Day, and then it changed titles to Women of Wonder Day, but it was uh, an event at which I got hundreds of comic artists from around the world to donate drawings they, they'd done of Wonder Woman or other female-based characters and auction them off for domestic violence shelters and women's crisis lines. And I think in total, between the events that I put on directly or the ones that I helped shepherd in Texas and uh, New Jersey, I think we raised somewhere around $135,000 total for domestic violence shelters. So that was, you know, I mean, I, I don't take credit for that completely because it couldn't have happened without those, 
without those hundreds of comic artists who who did stuff. But it was nice to be able to to take an aspect of the community that people like the charities were like, really a comic art auction is going to raise money for us. Like they, they couldn't wrap their heads around mm. and, and get them and the industry to realize that we can be heroes too. That what, that we have the power if we step outside of our boxes and um, <laughs> let me rephrase, if we step outside of our long boxes and, um, <laughs> You know, and and kind of make our voices heard, and and figure out ways that are fun in which we can accomplish some of these same goals. Um, you know, that's great. When I saw uh, Melissa Benoit, um, or Benoist, I'm not sure how to say her last name. Sorry, uh, but Supergirl. When I mm-hmm. saw Supergirl with her sign at the the Women's March, that was a perfect example of taking something that was personal and specific to her but also known to everybody and, and, and saying um, I'm making my fandom and in her case, her job, but, but I'm making my fandom part of my activism. And um, you know, that's something I, I see it happening now with a lot of these cosplayers who are going to hospitals and who are appearing at things and the, you know, the superhero cosplayers, then you get the star Wars cosplayers who who do similar things and who raise money at conventions by posing for photos? Um, that is a that is them taking the things that make them happy and finding ways to make the world a better place using those things that make them happy. I really appreciate that, and I, I thank you for sharing all of that with us. And you know, now is the time, folks, not to sit back and relax. I don't want to see the clock go back twenty, thirty years. You know, we all have to be vigilant and continue to resist and fight for our rights well bringing it full circle full circle to the characters that i'm writing you know wonder woman and the bionic woman don't exist in our world in in a real way you know we don't have somebody that can tie up our leadership and say tell the truth (laughs) you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. so unfortunately we have to do that kind of on our own we have to figure out what is real real and what is not on our own we have to fight the villains on our own um but uh, but it, it at the same time one of the things that comics do best and really entertainment is it allows us a, a, an escape from the whatever parts of our reality we need an escape from and sometimes that means we get us we get to see some romantic movie uh, that you know that speaks to us because we're you know not in a romance or need a romance or whatever and sometimes it means that we need to see something violent and sometimes it means we need to see something heroic and um you know these two characters wonder woman and the bionic woman were not just superheroes they were human heroes and what really as i said at the beginning what the actresses brought to it was was the strength of their humanity not the super strength um, and, and so I really hope that in the comics, that's what I'm bringing out as well. Thank you, Andy, so much for your time and being so generous with us. How can fans reach you? You can keep up with me in a couple of different ways. My website is www.andymangles.com and you have to spell it right. It's like, like angels, like Charlie's angels <laughs> with an M in front of it. Um, cause I get people misspelling it constantly. It drives me nuts. Um, 
Uh, you can also find me on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter, but I'm not terribly active on Twitter. And that's for an old guy. That's that's the 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 best you're going to get out of me. I don't think I'm going to Instagram or or uh, you know be on any of these Snapchat or or anything like that because my attention span's longer than thirty seconds. <laughs> There's too many channels now. <laughs> yeah, there is. There really is. Yeah. I, I understand. I understand why. There's there's a new app every day because people are trying to make money and they're trying to make people go to their apps. But but boy, I'll tell you, it, it it's exhausting trying to keep up with it. And do you have any convention appearances this year set up? So far, I have three conventions that I am committed to so far. Uh, one is April 18th and 19th in San Francisco. I'll be at the Queers and Comics Conference. And that is a uh, scholarly uh, conference uh, that will bring together a lot of uh, LGBT and um, like-minded individuals in the comic world um, to talk about various things. Uh, June 30th to July 2nd, I will be at Denver Comic Con, and um, I'll speak about that in just a second, but then July 19th to 23rd, I'll be at Comic Con International in San Diego, and I'll probably be home-based uh, mostly at the PRISM comics booth. Uh, PrismComics.org is an organization that I'm very strongly a part of. It's an organization that I co-founded, and it's uh, been a strong support system for LGBT creators and fans. Um, but I want to go back to Denver Comic Con because Wonder Woman fans, uh, you know, uh, last year I was a guest there, and um, in addition to signing books and, and appearing on panels and so forth, I also uh, married 10 couples at the convention. They had a, a, a mass wedding ceremony, and I was in a... Um, my vestments and stole were, shall we say, Wonder Woman reflective. <laughs> <laughs> they were... They were red and gold, and uh, my uh, my belt was a golden golden uh, rope sash, and uh, my stole had uh, the Wonder Woman symbols on the bottom of it. And in the marriage ceremony, which was very much based towards the fact that these were all um, geek fan couples, and most of them are cosplaying as well, uh, but the marriage ceremony referenced everything from Game of Thrones and Star Trek and Star Wars and so forth. But at the at the moment that I married the couples, uh, I actually had uh, ten lengths of the golden lasso that I had that I had cut and bound for them, and I wrapped those around their hands in, in like a hand wrapping ceremony. And uh, I I said that this is this this will make sure this will ensure that you stay keep, tell the truth to each other and that you stay true to each other throughout your marriage and so forth and um so i actually made wonder woman and and her accoutrement a part of the wedding ceremony so denver comic-con um was so thrilled with with how that went and so forth that they're there they asked me to come back again and and be the uh the wonder minister for um Perhaps an even bigger wedding. They're they're inviting the uh, Guinness Book of World Records, I believe, and and so I, I I'm pretty certain they're intending on a bigger wedding than than ten couples. 
<laughs> and we're going to have a reunion of those 10 couples there as well. So What don't you do? <laughs> there's, there's, yeah, yeah. My, my people ask me what I do, and I'm like, well, it's a lot of stuff. <laughs> Well, Andy, thank you so much again for being so generous with your time, and I wish you the best of luck, but you don't need it. You're doing so well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Chris. Um, The only thing we didn't talk about, and I do have to say, because everybody asked me about it, is is Max the Bionic Dog going to appear in the comics? Oh, okay. And and to that I say, well, he is on the cover of issue number two and on the cover of issue number five. So I think if you pick up issue number three, um, you're going to be very, very, very happy. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I'm there. Um, because I will pick you it up. always need superpowered dogs in comics. There can never be enough of them. <laughs> yes. Thanks, Andy. Thank you very much, Chris. Have a great one. And that concludes my interview with writer Andy Mangles. Look for issue three of Wonder Woman 77 meets the Bionic Woman coming up soon in March. What did you think of the podcast? Let me know. Do you want to hear more pop culture type podcasts? Well, just let me know, and there are a few ways you can do that. One, you can reach out to me on Facebook at Creator Talks Pod, that's at Creator Talks Pod, or on Twitter at Creator Talks Pod, that's at Creator Talks Pod. You can also email me through my website, creatortalks.com, that's creatortalks.com. There you will find past interviews on video, past written articles, and related blog posts to this very episode and other episodes of the podcast Creator Talks. Well, I've been working away lining up more guests for the show, and it looks like March and April we have almost a full slate already. I hope you're enjoying the podcasts I'm producing. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and this one is focused just on writer and artist interviews and comic books. And I know there are those of you out there busy with family, schoolwork, work, and no one really has the time to just sit and listen to a podcast, much like none of us have time to just sit and listen to music. And so I enjoy listening to it while I'm working out, while I'm commuting, if I'm doing some mindless kind of uh, repetitious work, such as raking the yard, shoveling snow, cutting the lawn, folding laundry, emptying the dishwasher. You know, it really helps get through some of those daily tasks that I have to do. And uh, you should try it. Uh, Listen to podcasts while you're doing those monotonous tasks. And what I find is that I always learn something listening to the podcast I choose. I learn something about the creative team. I learn something about the comic book. I learn something about a television show. And I hope that you learn something listening to this show. And all the content is free. I know you have a lot of podcasts to choose from, and I thank you for choosing this one. For Creator Talks, I'm Christopher Calloway. And until next time.